Hello, and welcome to the WPHP Monthly Mercury, the podcast for the Women's Print History Project. My name is Candace Sharon, and I am one of the hosts of this podcast and a longtime editor of the WPHP. This is the fourth of five bonus episodes that expand on our Frankensteinian episode for the Bars Dasser 2022 conference, New Romanticisms. In the process of making that episode, we interviewed each of the keynote speakers, and our conversations with them were delightful, brilliant, generous, and wide-ranging. They were also far too long to include in their entirety in one episode of reasonable length. In this bonus episode, we're sharing our interview with Manu Simridi Chander, whose unplenary was titled, Have These Gentlemen Ever Seen a Revolution? A Provocation. Manu Simridi Chander is an associate teaching professor at Georgetown University. He is a founding member of the Bigger Six Collective and the author of Brown Romantics, Poetry and Nationalism in the Global 19th Century. Our conversation with Manu was the first interview we conducted. It took place over Zoom the week before the conference, and it gave us a sneak preview of his talk. In the clip we shared in the full conference episode, we covered the role of centralized authority in Romanticism and his planned keynote, but our full conversation delved deeper into the multiplicity of forms of radicalism, democracy, and Romanticism, the ambivalence embedded in them, and what he was most excited about in the upcoming conference. So thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to be able to talk to you, um, you know, in advance of the conference that is happening next week at the time that we're doing this interview. The conference program lists your talk as an unplenary. So we'd love to start there. Can you tell us a bit about what that means? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, the uh, and when Andy McInnes, um, you know, who's uh, leading the conference organization, reached out to me about this, um, it was it was his term um, as uh, and he offered it as a way of reconciling um, some of the the work that uh, we've been doing as uh, in in the Bigger Six Collective to um, to try and cut against the tendency to to um sort of to set to consecrate the individual voice um mm. which you know as those of us who think mm-hmm. about romanticism know is um very much sort of central to <laughs> mm-hmm. um both the romantic moment and its um sort of legacies um so to 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 push against that and think about what a a plenary um, session that was not centered around one person might look like. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it works out well that I have to zoom in. And so we're sort of taking advantage of the opportunities afforded by this technology to sort of present a talk that's kind of um, the other phrase we've used besides unplenary is it's a reverse Q&A. So I'm oh. going to um, be presenting some remarks and re- raising some questions that we're hoping um, folks will take into breakout sessions that will be the bulk mm-hmm. of the session mm. um, and give people a chance to to turn over a set of questions um, and think about how some of the ideas I'm raising might inform our thinking about uh, what's new or what might be new in romanticism um, in years to come. Mm, wonderful. That sounds really exciting. Yeah. So do you want to speak a little bit more about what those ideas you're planning to raise are? Um, do you have a sentence or two 
that you can give us or more. Um, I know things can probably <laughs> change between now and yeah, next week. Yeah, <laughs> no, in a, in, a sent, in a sentence or two, it's about my inability to decide on a topic um, <laughs> and my desire to cram everything I possibly can into the relatively brief um, remarks that um, are setting up our collective discussion. Uh, but in short, I'm interested in which versions of radicalism and democracy, two terms that are central to romantic mm-hmm. era politics, Um, but I think have never been completely coherent in themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Which versions of radicalism and democracy uh, do we wish to extend in our work as romanticists Mm -hmm. on romanticism? Um, I'd say that's probably the the, the briefest version (laughs) of it that I can... Very well done. (laughs) I know, doing something in a sentence or two can be so agonizing. (laughs) (laughs) I've never successfully done it. Um, So the abstract that you sent us as a bit of a sneak peek for what you're going to be doing refers to the strong centralized authority that becomes important to revolutionary uh, movements, sorry, aspiring Mm -hmm. to what Marx called the dictatorship of the proletariat and how these movements represent a lot of... I can't talk today. A radical tradition left out of romanticism. Um, Mm -hmm. So what do you... Do you want to say a little bit more about that that centralized authority and um, what the link between it and romanticism is and what are some of the ways you see it manifesting, um, I guess, historically and now? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So as I've been preparing these um, remarks, I... um, Somebody sent me a link to um, Fiona Sampson has a relatively new essay in um, in Eon magazine um, where she talks about romanticism as uh, as sort of chiefly anti-monarchical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- and I, th- I think when I read that, I was reminded that that is a sort of common um, assumption we still sort of hold about what romanticism was. So our chief points of reference um, still tend to be the revolutions in France and America. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So by by that logic, Wollstonecraft and Godwin and Paine are romantic, while Burke and others who voiced skepticism mm-hmm. and fear about revolutionary fervor were not. Um, mm. I think that's a bad model of romanticism. Um, <laughs> I think that by and, by and large, I mean, we... I think those of us who specialize in the field sort of have think think differently um, mm-hmm. about romanticism, even as we sort of um, have that in the back of our head as a, uh, a sort of um, uh, as even as we have revolution as a sort of quintessentially la- uh, romantic um, idea and political force. Mm-hmm. We also know that. Um, that romanticism is is much about um, the conflicts over revolution and democracy rather Mm -hmm. than a specific coherent set of positions about um, those things. And that's actually, I think, where um, questions of of print technology and print media become really interesting in this context, right? So we know Mm -hmm. that romanticism wasn't just... um, pain and his pamphlets but it was the counter voices to pain um mm-hmm. that um that characterized the the pamphlet wars of the 1790s mm-hmm. and that that it was really um you know it was really about a, a set of debates uh, about 
about what a strong centralized authority meant, whether it should be overturned, whether it could be overturned. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that I'm interested in the way that um, over the course of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, you get different sort of strands of Mm -hmm. radical thought that have different attitudes towards um, what a, you know, what a sort of strong centralized government should do or could do um, or whether one should exist at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So from uh, a romantic period that's relatively uncertain about the terms of what radicalism looks like, um, where there's multiple ideas that haven't um, fully developed into um, specific uh, political formations, um, from that, you get various strands or various strains of leftist thought. Um, mm-hmm. And this is um, particularly pronounced in, um, in, in a passage that my, the title of my talk uh, is drawn from. So I, I, I took the title, um, Have These Gentlemen Ever Seen a Revolution? Mm. <laughs> from this moment in, um, in Engels' um, uh, brief, but I think really important, um, late 19th century essay on authority where responding to the rise of um, I think what we'd now call sort of anarcho-communism he explains that a revolution is in fact the most authoritarian thing there is a Mm -hmm. revolution is a small group of people Mm -hmm. asserting their authority over an entire um, community Mm -hmm. right and then Mm -hmm, often mm -hmm. um, upholding that authority through the use of um, repressive tools and violent Mm -hmm. means Um, and so when I think about that I'm reminded that um, as sort of radical traditions in the plural um, sort of unfold over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries the question over um, how much is too much authority Um, should there be no centralized authority Mm -hmm. Um, who is authority good for will end up um, leading to very different strains of um, of of leftist thought and I've been particularly interested in the line of thought that tend that I think as I sort of mentioned in those um, in the uh, summary of the talk that I think does get sort of left out of um, much of Western Marxism, but that gets taken very seriously by third world internationalism and black Mm -hmm. Marxism, um, which is the the idea that um, you in fact need certain um, repressive um, arms of the state in order to quell and quash um, uh, those who want to sort of continually uphold um, uh, capitalist exploitation that's grounded in mm-hmm. racism. Um, so another way of saying this is <laughs> you need someone to shut down the KKK, uh, mm-hmm. right? You need someone, right? You need, um, and, and Du Bois um, had a clear sense of that. So one of the strains of um, thought that I'm, focusing on is what Du Bois called abolition democracy. Mm. Um, And within abolition democracy, um, which has sort of been recently taken up um, by Angela Davis and and others, Mm -hmm. um, but within it, um, you know, the more I've been sort of thinking about it, there 
there is no necessary contradiction between a certain strain of or a certain kind of strong authoritarianism and democracy. In fact, you mm-hmm. need mm. certain authoritarian um, tendencies in order to uphold democracy totally. that's um, that's actually uh, inclusive of and um, grounded on ideas of black self-determination, mm. political and economic self-determination, right? So that, mm. that, that doesn't necessarily sit well with those of us, you know, um, who mm-hmm. might be worried about, you know, the threat to freedom posed by, mm-hmm. um, you know, for example, um, uh, to, to, you know, if we think about, um, let me back up and, and offer uh, <laughs> this as, so right now in the re- in recent years and recent months in the U.S., we have this sort of kind of stupid debate about critical race theory and teaching critical race theory in high schools. Um, So one argument would be, okay, we should not teach critical race theory. It's an impingement on freedom um, because it teaches, I mean, I don't even know what the hell these people are, the (laughs) anti-CRTs are arguing. I've written about this for um, for the Sun Now recently. but there's this set of arguments that we should not teach critical race theory. And then there is a, a, another position, which is we should sort of leave it up to different communities to define what's good for them. And then there's um, a position that I think is consistent with the ideas that come out of abolition democracy, which is that it's actually it's of um, absolute importance to the stability of a democracy that we teach how um, race is Mm -hmm. at uh, the center of all of our institutions and how racism is at the center of all the institutions that we've long relied on. That the democracy Mm -hmm. demands um, a large centralized intervention that says, yes, we will now take Mm -hmm. the lessons of the 1619 Project, right? And Mm -hmm. make sure that this is part of the curriculum. There's a range of different kinds of Mm -hmm. democracies. Mm -hmm. There's a range of different kinds of radicalisms. I mean, when I think about, like, what radicalism looks like, um, I I can't help but remember that the the January 6th insurgents were also radicals, right, Mm -hmm. in in their own mind, Um, that that the alt-right has taken up the term alt, um, to to sort of signal that they they come from um, with a set of radical ideas, right? So really, again, the question is, which radicalism, right? Mm-hmm. Which democracy? Um, given that both of those two terms were um, and and sort of at the center of a series of debates that were carried out throughout the Mantic period, which one do we opt for when we move forward as romanticists? Um, and it it plays out in macro levels, you know, what sort of politics are sort of guiding us as we do our work, mm-hmm. plays out in micro levels too. Um, so I was asked to speak at um, the North American Victorian Studies Association, NAVSA, Mm-hmm. Um, about um, teaching difficult materials. This was just this year, I think. Um, and uh, it had, the conversation 
was spurred because in a previous year, uh, one of the speakers or featured speakers, I don't know the full context, but had shown without preparing their audience a series of um, racially insensitive images, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, in order to critique. Uh, I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. in, obviously in favor yeah. of <laughs> right, 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 racism, right. but um, but so then the you know the question is how do we present these materials to people, um, you know. And and as I was writing and thinking about that, it occurred to me that one of the options is, and it's not necessarily a conservative option, is absolute censorship, mm. um, right? Is that a scholarly organization um, lays down a very clear set of guidelines about what um, is and is not appropriate to show and then enforces penalties, Um you know, based on what a, a, the severity of the breaching those um, standards looks like. Now, that's a threat to free speech. Let's be clear. I mean, like, that is a threat to free speech, mm-hmm. but is it in a threat to free speech in the service of a greater good? Mm. These are questions that scholarly organizations need to reckon with, that teachers need to reckon with, mm-hmm. that journals need to reckon with, and um, that do ultimately come down to uh, a set of political questions that, again, were, were circulating mm. in the Romantic era. Um, questions about what democracy looks like and what um, what radical politics look like, um, and so I'm just interested in in our thinking mm-hmm. collectively as a group of scholars about you know where we want to position ourselves um, in a field of possible mm-hmm. um, approaches mm-hmm. to thinking about um, about these sort of urgent political terms. Right. Oh, fantastic. I'm so excited to hear your unplenary. I think that's going to be so, so <laughs> wonderful. Um, thank you for expanding on that. And I think because mm-hmm. you're already kind of uh, gesturing forward with what you're, with what you're talking to us um, about here, um, I'd love to, to jump to a question about uh, the name of the conference, New Romanticisms. Um, I feel like yeah. you've started gesturing at this already, but, but what, does that, what does that mean to you? Like taken <laughs> literally, what kinds of new romanticisms are you maybe seeing in the field now or more broadly, if you'd like, what are you hoping to see for, for, for new romanticisms um, in the future? I'm also really interested in how it's plural, new romanticisms, like thinking about more than just one type of yeah. romanticism. But anyways, mm-hmm. please yeah, speak I to mean, any of that. It's interesting. <laughs> the, the plurality of romanticism, of course, is not new in and of itself. Right, That goes back to, um, to Lovejoy mm-hmm, writing mm-hmm, a century mm-hmm. ago, talking about mm-hmm. the discrimination of romanticisms. Um, so we've long been sort of reckoning with the, the, the fact of and the problem of there being not a single um, mm-hmm. coherent romanticism, mm-hmm. but multiply um, defined romanticisms. Mm-hmm. I was also I was really interested in the conference um, themes reference to the new romantics of the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. um, that I know yeah. um, partly inspired <laughs> yes. Andy and his team. Um, so it's, you know, this group of it's a relatively small group of British bands that called upon mm-hmm. romantic fashions in order to create a particular aesthetic. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> as I was thinking about that, I, um, I started to, to reflect on, and this I think is making it into the talk by one way or another, <laughs> um, something that came out around the same time as those bands, which was um, like deeply it's sort of ingrained in the imagination of so many um, (laughs) Americans and black Americans, especially, which was the 1978 musical, the whiz. 
Um, which, when I think about it, the more I started to think about The Wiz, I was like, that is actually a deeply romantic text because what it ends up offering us is a, um, is a, is a fundamental ambivalence about mm. revolution and democracy, about, um, about those terms. And that ambivalence, I think, is what is really characteristically romantic in some ways. So it's... Um, you know, it's a it's a film that's about the overpro overthrowing of oppressive structures, um, but it's also one that rehearses, um, particularly in its sort of main song toward the end of the movie, um, a kind of commitment to liberal individualism mm. um, that's really sort of characteristic of the sort of post civil rights seventies um, mm. and eighties. <clears throat> Um, so I'm talking a little bit about the whiz in my um, in my <laughs> remarks, and um, and the way that that actually is a kind of new romantic mm. text, um, not because it calls for revolution, but because it's ambivalent about revolution, um, because it, it sort of in, it, it inhabits that sort of uncertainty, mm-hmm. and so sort of, and I guess in, in sort of largely more broadly, that's the idea um, is that I, I think mm-hmm. we're you know we when we think about romantic new romanticism and we we go to sort of the new romantics of the 70s and 80s i'm reminded that romance when we think of romanticism we're still largely focused on um white cultural production Mm. um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, and some mm -hmm. have been pushing back against that for decades of course but i think there's a new energy around that push now Mm -hmm. um to think about what romanticism means when we think about it in in the black context when we think about it in third world contexts when we think about it Mm -hmm. um so there's a new sort of energy around that that i've been really excited to see um you know and I'm, i'm hopeful that that will We'll continue to explore um, explore those ideas uh, as we sort of move forward as a field and as a and as a collective as a group mm-hmm. of scholars mm-hmm. um, that are sort of trained to think critically about um, about what is right. It's an impossible term, romanticism. Mm-hmm. It's an impossible <laughs> term, like uh, you, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But we're committed, I think, as a group to to sort of unpacking it. And I think one of the ways that I, I really um, am excited to see it on that conversation unfold is by um, looking in unexpected places, um, whether that's um, Duran Duran mm-hmm. or um, uh, or uh, <laughs> you know or the the Wiz. All right, and that's a great place to lead into our last question. Um, we know you're going to be joining the conference virtually, but um, is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to participating in? Uh, hearing about on the program any of anything like that that you want to share there's tons of stuff on the program that i'm excited about um there's uh um a couple of panels that the race and empire caucus have put together that i think Mm. are going to be really exciting in fact i know they are and i know um they're (laughs) um uh, i'm one of the caucus chair co-chairs um I'm also, I'm really, I'm just, I'm excited to see how the hybrid model works. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Not least because we'll be hosting NASA at my home institution at Rutgers in a couple of years. And I'm mm-hmm. hoping to steal from slash benefit from the work Andy and his team have put <laughs> yeah. into making a hybrid event. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, I always come away from, from NASA. I've only been to bars once, um, but I always come away from 
from these mm-hmm. things, feeling both smarter and um, also dumber, <laughs> like more conscious of how much um, how much more I want to learn and how much more yeah. you know there is, and, and that's a really sort of invigorating thing. So yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see how things play out. I'm obviously I'm hugely looking forward to Trisha Matthews' keynote. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she'll be fantastic. She's yeah, we're excited. Yeah, to, we're really looking forward to it too. We're excited for it. This has been so great. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Um, no, thank you. So much short minute. I really appreciate your making right the before time. the conference. We're so excited about what the final <laughs> episode is gonna is gonna come together as. Um, I think it's it's wonderful that we're yeah that we've got like you on I here said too. I probably won't listen to our segment but I'll listen to the rest. <laughs> <laughs> We're so grateful Manu took time away from preparing for his on plenary to tell us about his plans for it. It was a fantastic way to start thinking about his question of which version of romanticism we want to center as we headed into the conference. This has been the fourth bonus episode of It's Alive, the WPHP monthly Mercury at New Romanticisms. If you haven't listened to our Bars Nasser conference episode yet, it is the first episode of season four, containing interviews with keynotes, organizers, a pedagogy prize adjudicator, MA students, and grad student prize winners. Next week, we will be sharing the fifth and final bonus episode before we get back to business as usual. You can keep up with our project by checking out www.womensprinthistoryproject.com or by following us on Twitter or X at the WPHP and on Instagram at Women's Print History Project. We have also joined Blue Sky, finally, as the WPHP. (laughs) 